Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's about how my class greet me as well. That's nice. Um, <laughs> it's great to be here, isn't it? I think, firstly, it's, it's a bit of a weird time, obviously, um, and I'm not going to spend the whole morning mentioning the C word and the V word, but um, I think one of the things I've been struck with this morning is just how great it is to be together. Um, you can sometimes sort of take things for granted, can't you? I know yesterday afternoon, when normally I'd be looking through my phone constantly about quarter five, seeing if my football team have let me down again, um, I suddenly realised that actually I take it for granted all the different things that I get to enjoy. And um, Sunday morning is one of those things. I think it's really great that we can still meet and it's really good to appreciate that and appreciate just how great it is that we can come together, sing songs about Jesus together, that we can um, hear from his word um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to um, this morning we're going to carry on the from where Tom left us off last week. The other Tom um, in Luke 22. So we're um, on a really really famous scene where Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples uh, at the Passover. And really at the start of what we're looking at today, I want us to just I think it's really helpful to remember this context. Um, the Passover meal that Jesus is having. Um, would have been a really significant time to, um, to Jews in that time. It would have been a time that you normally spent with your family. Um, a bit like for Christmas might be for us, where we gather our family together. Different to New Year's Eve, where we gather together with our friends, um, our mates, our neighbours. Christmas for us generally is a family time. And Passover at this time would have been a time to gather together with your family. Um, but Jesus wasn't gathering together with his family. He was to, gathering together with his disciples, with his friends. And by spending this time with his disciples rather than his family, um, I think Jesus is sending to a message to his disciples that they are his family, that his friends are part of his family. This, the meal that we're looking at today isn't a group of buddies hanging out together. This isn't him getting the lads round um, for a nice meal together. This is a family gathering. And at this family meal, Jesus is starting to prepare his brothers, not just his mates, but his brothers, for what's coming. So what Jesus is teaching here, what Jesus is going to talk about here, is aimed at the small, intimate audience of a family meal. It's not him preaching to a big crowd. He did lots of preaching to big crowds. But the context we're in is actually a family meal. Um, so we can sort of think, oh, it's not a big crowd. I'm here in a big crowd. Is this not important to me? But this position of family isn't just reserved for the disciples. Um, if you're sat here this morning having given your life to Jesus, then you're very, very much part of God's family. John 1 verse 12 describes how those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Galatians 3 verse 26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We can sometimes shy away a bit from that language of family. Uh, the language of brother and sister can sometimes feel a bit weird. So when we talk to our friends who aren't from church, we maybe say, oh, we're our friend from church or this person I know from church. But the Bible makes it clear that our relationship with each other is very much one of family, especially as we encounter a bit of a weird time. It's really important to remember that here we're not sat with acquaintances or vague friends that we're sat with, our brothers and sisters. Um, and I think 
obviously, whatever Jesus has to say is worth listening to. If Jesus is speaking to a big crowd, it's worth listening to. But I think there's something special about this intimate audience of a family meal um, that as members of his family, we can particularly pay attention to. Um, Because he counts us as his brothers and sisters as well. Just as he counts the disciples as his really close friends, his brothers and his sisters, that's us as well. We we count in that um, category. So... um, You might be here today and thinking, actually, I haven't given my life yet to Jesus. I don't think I am part of Jesus' family yet. Um, And that's fine. Hopefully today's, what we look at today, will give you a really good sort of window into what it's like to be part of Jesus' family. You're probably here because you want to know a little bit more, maybe. Um, And this will give you a really good view into the shop window of what is it like to be part of Jesus' family? What does that mean for, for life in general? So... Um, for let's read the passage, shall we? So Luke chapter 22, and I'm reading from verse 24, um, and I'm reading from the NIV version. So also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. That's the disciples who were arguing. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise, uh, those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may... Eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know, know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack nothing? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching for its fulfilment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So I want to start this morning at the end of the passage, actually. Um, Slightly controversial. Um, But I think it gives us a good idea as to how important what Jesus is sharing with his disciples is. Jesus gives, at the end of this passage, his disciples some slightly cryptic, slightly strange instructions about how, if they don't have a sword, then they should sell all their possessions um, to ensure that they can buy one. Now, we need to be careful with this reference here, not to take Jesus' instructions too literally. Um, The mention of swords is probably a figurative mention of swords. We see Jesus rebuking Peter later on in um, verse 51 in this chapter, um, telling him to put down his sword. Um, And he's 
rebukes the disciples pretty much straight away here for taking him too literally um, when they point out that they've got two swords already. Um, he doesn't actually want them to go out and buy a sword, um, but he does use the imagery of swords to show that things are about to change. Uh, whereas in the past they've lacked nothing, now they're heading towards a time where things are going to get more difficult. They're going to face more attack and they need to be ready. He wants to make it clear to the disciples that things are going to get tough and that being part of his family is not going to be an easy ride. The prophecy he refers to uh, being fulfilled in him is taken from Isaiah chapter 53. And a look at the language from that chapter shows us exactly what's going to happen, how tough it's going to get. Describes how he will be despised, crushed, pierced, oppressed, afflicted, assigned a grave with the wicked, cut off from the land of the living. Why is all that happening? Because in verse 12 of that chapter, it says that he was going to bear the sin of many. And verse 5, take the punishment that should be ours on himself. He knows that God, in verse 6, God is going to lay on him, on Jesus, the iniquities, so the sins, the things that we've done wrong, um, so that as, again, verse 5, by his wounds we are healed. Jesus knows that what he's going to do on the cross is going to deal fully with the problem of sin, of us not being worthy of God in our own strength and our own deeds. He knows that by dying, he's going to be able to take away the problem of us not being worthy of being in heaven with him and by taking the punishment for all the bad things that we have done. But he also knows that the coming time, the now and the not yet time, after he has died and after and been resurrected, and after he's gone back to heaven to be with his father, but before ultimately he returns at the end of days, this time is not going to be easy. And the disciples are going to need to be on their guard. They are going to face attack. And Jesus wants them to be forewarned. So, for the disciples, the obvious way um, this was worked out was that the persecution they were going to face from the authorities um, for being followers of Jesus, for believing what they believed. They were going to face being thrown in jail, being tortured, even killed for following him. We saw Jesus um, warn of this, warn his disciples of this in chapter 21, and Dan explored it a couple of weeks ago. So I don't want to spend ages going over the same ground, but I do think it's significant that Jesus chooses to emphasise this to his disciples again. He's mentioned it once, he wants to mention it again. And he wants them to know that life is going to get tough and that we're going to face, they're going to face opposition and attack. Now, in our country, we're, we're lucky. We don't face that kind of opposition. We're not going to get arrested for our faith at the moment. Um, but just because we're not going to be arrested for our faith doesn't mean that we should feel complacent or at ease or feel like this doesn't apply to us. We definitely live in a time where we're going to face attack for believing in Jesus, for who we believe in. That attack looks different to what the disciples were going to face, um, but it is still our enemy is no less dangerous and no less determined to stop us in our tracks. Um, this attack might be linked to our culture. Uh, we can feel like we're going to be rejected socially or face sort of social oppression for saying what we believe or saying what we believe the Bible says. 
um, or maybe even not allowed to believe what we think the Bible says because maybe society's moved on from that. Um, but, or it might mean, um, just, as, just as it could be an attack from our culture, it could just be a voice in our head. Satan knows how powerful just a voice in our head um, that tells us we're not good enough or a worrying thought, especially at the moment, a worrying thought like, what will happen if this happens or that happens? Or this doesn't happen? Or how will I cope with this? Or what will people think of me if I do this? Or maybe it might be a thought like, do this and it will bring you satisfaction. Satan knows how effective all of these things, all these different ways of attacking us are um, in distracting us from living as members of Jesus' family. Um, they can be just as effective in knocking us off our tracks, knocking us off from following Jesus as the threat of arrest can be. Um, And our enemy wants one thing ultimately, and that is to knock us from following Jesus. That's all he's interested in. Jesus wants us to warn us of the dangers we face because he wants the best for us and he wants to get us ready. John 10 verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He warns us because he wants us to have this life to the full and because he wants us to be prepared and he wants us to know that we're under threat. And how do we do that? How do we stand up to this enemy? How do we stand up to this attack? It's a significant attack. How do we stand up to it? Ephesians 6 verse 11 tells us, put on the full armour of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. In other words, the solution in moments of difficulty is to turn to Jesus. He gives us what we need when we face up to this attack. Jesus wants his family to know that they are under attack so that they can be ready um, to turn to him um, and turn to him for what we need to withstand the attack that we face. So, that has already mentioned, I cycle to work. Whatever the weather, whether it's raining, whether it's hailing, whether it's windy, whether it's occasionally sunny, um, I cycle to work on my bike. Um, And what that means is that I get plenty of use out of the weather app on my phone. The Met Office app is one of the most used apps on my phone. Um, If it's wet, I can't change the forecast. I can't stop it raining. I can't make it less windy. Um, But I can make sure that I've got my waterproof stuff in my bag. I can, so, if, so that means if it, even if it is chucking down, I can stay dry. Um, if I wasn't aware of the danger of the rain, I wouldn't bother packing my waterproof stuff. Um, and though I might get away with it for a couple of days, um, eventually I'd get wet. That happened to me this morning. I looked at my phone, saw it was going to rain, knew I was biking to church, so in my bag is my waterproof stuff. So when it rains after church, I'll stay dry, just about. Um, so, but, so I might get away with it for a few days, but eventually, living in this country, eventually I will get wet. Um, so just as I can't change the forecast, we are going to face temptation and we are going to face trials and we are going to face attack. Um, but just like I can check the weather forecast, I can choose to check the weather forecast, we can prepare ourselves for that attack. 
Just as I have my waterproofs, Jesus gives us what we need to be able to stand up to the attacks that we face from the devil. We need to be ready to face the attack, but we don't need to be fearful. Jesus gives us what we need to get through. Um, we need to turn to him who, as 1 Peter, so it's 1 Peter 3 verse 22 tells us, so the Jesus we turn to is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. We turn to a God who is far above any attack that we can have, far stronger than any attack um, that we might come against. The attack that we face is significant and we need to be ready for it. Um, but it is nothing compared to the God that we can turn to, to Jesus who we can turn to. So, Jesus has warned his disciples that life as a member of his family is going to be difficult, that we'll face opposition. Um, but what sets it apart? What sets apart being in this family from any other family or community? You can join a sports club, you can go to a pub, you can um, join a knitting club, and you can find community. Uh, what sets Jesus' family apart from the rest of this, from the rest of the world? So we see the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. We don't actually know whether they were vying for the top spot, whether they were all deciding, it should be me, it should be me, or whether they were just having an argument and arguing in general. But we can see that greatness is definitely on their radar, and Jesus is quick to um, correct them. He tells them, The greatest among you, verse 26, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is telling his disciples that being great in his family is about serving others. Not serving others to win something back um, or as a way of preparing yourselves for greater things later on, but serving because that's what Jesus did. Not looking for reward or payment now, but knowing that our reward will come in heaven. If a politician has come from a humble background or an upbringing, you can guarantee that come election time, they will mention it as often as possible. Every Every speech, every interview, they'll find a way of shoehorning it in. Now, obviously, um, when politics is done well, politicians see their role as public servants. So the rise from a humble background to politician can be an extension of this service, um, of, finding one of finding another way of helping people as the best they can. But often this service of being the least rather than the greatest is portrayed as being helpful because it prepared them for the greatness of ruling. A picture can be painted by them of working their way up the ladder, of starting off humbly before moving onward and upward to greater things. But Jesus isn't talking about this kind of service first. About Jesus isn't talking about service as a means to an end. It's not about working your way up from the bottom or about getting something back. It's about serving, not to make ourselves look good, but serving to honour Jesus and to love one another. I know sometimes, for me, that temptation of serving and wondering about what other people might think can start to creep in. I serve on the youth team here and also spent lots of time um, serving on the GLOW team. And they're both T-shirt teams. 
So when you serve on that team, you get to wear a very stylish blue or a very stylish grey T-shirt. I don't know quite why the youth decide they need grey and the children have something bright and colourful. I don't know. Um, but if I'm on youth or if I'm on glow, I can sometimes feel that a little sense of pride creeping in that people will see me in my T-shirt and see what a wonderful, amazing, servant-hearted, humble attitude I have, and they'll be impressed. Um, <coughs> Sometimes if I'm at work and I'm emptying the dishwasher um, and there's no one in the staff room, I'm secretly hoping that someone will work, walk into the room and be again impressed with how humble and hardworking I am um, <coughs> and how I'm helping others without wanting any attention. Um, <coughs> I have to wa watch myself and make sure that when I'm serving others, I'm doing it to honour Jesus and to love those around me, not as a means of boosting my own sense of self-worth or my own sense of superiority, I suppose. Jesus modelled serving himself. He says, I am among you as one who serves. We can see this in John's account of this meal, of the same meal, where he describes how Jesus, the Son of God, who's come down from heaven, the King of Kings, washes his disciples' feet. And ultimately, we see it in his fulfillment of that prophecy that we read from Isaiah 53 earlier on, where it says, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' service wasn't about making himself look good. It was all about loving us and giving himself completely for us. I think as a church, there are loads of examples of fantastic servant-heartedness um, going on all the time. If you were in this building a few hours ago, you'd have seen people lugging speakers around and children's toys, filling up tea urns, putting up banners, all brilliant examples of people giving their time. You'd have seen people giving people lifts um, who can't get there themselves. It's not just a Sunday morning either at the... If you went to the Fletton Centre through the week, you'd see people um, giving, giving up their time to give debt advice to people at Life Money, um, people serving tea and coffee at the living room, people setting out toys for toddlers and their families at Life Tops, um, people going out of their way week in, week out to serve other people, people um, outside the Fletton Centre opening up their homes every week to invite people around to their life groups. There are many examples of brilliant, brilliant service in Life Church. So we're really good at it. But I think there's still some really big challenges um, in the picture that Jesus paints. Um, all of this is really a pretty challenging. It has a knock, massive knock-on effect on how we think about our role within God's family. Our instincts generally are pretty me-centric. We often think about ourselves first and how it will impact us or, or maybe what we can get out of it. But I wonder how things would look different if we really, really grabbed hold of this servant-hearted attitude and got rid of our me-centric attitude. So this can start at home. Would our families look any different if everything we did was about serving each other without expecting anything back, um, without thinking of ourselves first and maybe perhaps our own comfort? What would our marriages look like if that became our number one priority? putting the other people first, never expecting anything back, um, not worrying about our own comfort. Um, it can apply to our workplaces. What about work? Would 
if I really grabbed hold of this, would it change the way that I work? Would, I would the things that I prioritise and put most effort into be the same if I was purely focused on serving my school and the children in my class well, rather than having some of my attention drawn to making sure that I look like I'm doing a good job or um, I get considered for this promotion or this um, thing? How would the way that I work change if I was completely just focused on serving my school and my children well? And what about here at Life Church? We've said there's loads and loads of really good examples of service um, all the way through Life Church. But I wonder if we really grabbed hold of this, would we have teams like RPA team at the moment that are in desperate need of new members? Um, or if we completely grasped hold of putting serving and encouraging others above our own convenience and um, that kind of thing, would the attendance, the average attendance at life groups be more like 90% of our church than 50-60% of our church? Jesus doesn't want to, us to burn ourselves out, but I wonder how things would change if we really grasped hold of this attitude of service that he's talking about, that he's that he set and the example that he set for his family. This isn't Jesus um, just saying, do this. It's Jesus did this, and it's our example to follow. So we've seen how living as members of Jesus' family is going to be tough um, and that we're going to face opposition and attack. And we've also seen that it means being part of Jesus' family means living with a completely different perspective on family to the rest of our world. Um, now, finally, we're going to look to Simon Peter as an example for how to work this out, living as a member of his family, as an individual. The first bit that jumps out at me from Jesus' conversation is when Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Um, though we know Satan has power, and we shouldn't see him, take him lightly, and we've already said that that attack is significant, what we can see really clear, clearly through this is where the ultimate power and ultimate authority lies. Satan has to go to Jesus to ask permission. Um, we need to remember that whatever the attack, whatever the difficulty we are facing, we are on the winning side. We are on the side of the ultimate authority. Um, Dan said that a couple of weeks ago, it really, really sort of struck me um, as I was cycling through Ferry Meadows, um, listening to him, um, that even if the worst thing happens on this earth and we die, which is quite a morbid thing to think of while you're on your bike, maybe on the road, um, <laughs> uh, we get to spend eternity in heaven with him. We have no reason to fear whatsoever. But the second thing that really struck me when I read this, these verses is in verse 32, is what Jesus says next. He says, I have prayed for you. I ever since I first read this passage, I found it such an exciting image, such a powerful, incredible thing to think about. Jesus isn't just seeing, sitting back and seeing if we get through our tests and our trials and the struggles that are coming our way. Um, he's crying out to the Father for us. He's not like the PE teacher, and some of you might have had PE teachers like this, who sends their students off on a cross-country run on a cold day and stands there in a warm coat, with a stopwatch and a warm cup of coffee, um, just watching the time, thinking what, all his children are going too slow. Instead, Jesus is like 
Jesus is at the side of the track, handing out water bottles and bananas or energy gels or whatever, clapping and cheering us on our way. Um, Romans 8.34 describes how Christ Jesus, who died, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Not just Jesus. In verse 27 of Romans chapter 8, it says, um, the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with his will. We um, happened to look at these verses a few weeks ago in youth, and the power of it really, really struck me. When we're trying to live as members of God's family, um, in this radically different upside-down kingdom. When we're facing attack and we're facing opposition, um, we don't do it on our own. We do it with not one but two intercessors on our side. When we pray, we're praying, but our prayers are like three-way prayers. Jesus is praying. It, the Spirit is praying for us as well. I think this is a beautiful image. It's just really struck me over the last few weeks, really encouraged me. Um, we're far, far from being alone. Sometimes we can feel like we're on our own, but we are far away from being on our own. Hebrews 13, 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Everything we need, we get from God, not from ourselves. 1 Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, The one who, is who calls you is faithful, and he, not us, he will do it. He will do it. It's not about our own strengths or our own talents or our own will. It's not about how determined we are. We're actually fairly hopeless on our own. John Piper says said this, um, if they, so God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, weren't busy day and night strengthening our faith, it would disappear in a minute. Um, but in Jesus, we are completely secure. Our faith is secure. Um, Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them, my sheep, so us, um, eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on into the completion of the carry it on until completion until the day Jesus day of Jesus Christ. This security doesn't come from our actions or abilities, but it comes from Jesus. So, as we go through the passage, this is actually the mistake that Simon Peter makes. Uh, when he says, I am ready to go with you to prison and death. His sureness comes from his faith in how strongly he feels, how determined he is, um, comes from his own determination, rather than because he's putting his faith into Jesus. Jesus has singled him out. Jesus has told him that he's going to fail, but still he thinks he knows better. He is sure he won't fail. He's convinced he's not going to fail because he feels so strongly about Jesus. Not because he's put his faith in Jesus, but because he, he puts his faith in his own feelings. But, so, having a faith that is rooted in the strength of his own feelings, his own determination, fails him. And famously, we see Peter later on, in, as we go through Luke, Peter does deny Je Jesus three times. 
His own determination and desire to do everything for Jesus is not a firm enough foundation to build his faith on because it's reliant on him and not reliant on Jesus. But, of course, this is not the end of Simon Peter. Jesus named him Peter because he said he was going to be the rock that who, on whom he would build his church. Um, and this is what happened to Peter. This Peter did was the rock that Jesus built his church on. This isn't um, a sign of Jesus making a mistake by calling him a rock. Peter was the rock that Jesus built his church on. Um, making a mistake, Peter falling over and making a mistake, or um, doesn't make him any less rock-like. Actually, it's far from it. Peter calls on Jesus calls on Peter to strengthen your brothers, and he doesn't say it when you've completed this leadership training course or do that when you've. Um, done some really great things or when you've proved yourself he says strengthen your brothers when you have turned jesus wants the man he's going to build his church on not to be the most inspirational speaker or to be the most charismatic leader or the most organized or um just the most wonderful person but the best repenter Tim Keller describes how in our world, the leaders are the biggest and the best. Um, but in God's kingdom, leaders are those who repent the most. We can't rule ourselves. What that means is that we can't rule ourselves out from doing great things for God because we think we're not good enough or because of mistakes we've made. God wants Peter's to lead his church. People who make mistakes, but people who then turn to him. Um, who admit their mistakes, are aware of their failings, and as a result, know how much they need Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've failed, and you feel like you've messed up too badly, then I think we can use the example of Peter. Whether you're here and you're a member of Jesus' family, or whether you're here and you're thinking, I've not given my life yet to Jesus yet, but I've messed up way too badly for him, um, we can look to this example for Peter um, as a, a way that we can go. Peter is someone who failed but later repented and turned to Jesus and Jesus was able to restore him and use him to help his build his church on. Peter himself says in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 7, lots of years later about his trials. He says, These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. If Jesus can do this through Peter, if Jesus can use Peter who mucked up, um, then he can use each and every single one of us here. So, um, as I finish, Jesus has shown his disciples that um, life as a member of his family is going to be tough that we will face opposition, um, but he has shown us that he is stronger than anything we're going to come up against. And he will provide us with what we need to get through. And he has shown us that life in his family is radically different to what the world views as community. Um, it's a family where being full of people, rather than being full of people who want to grab what they can for themselves, um, it's full of people trying their best um, to serve one another. But finally, most amazingly for me, it's a family that welcomes people who mess up. As someone who messes up, 
This is amazing news. Um, where no one can count themselves out for stuff they've done or because stuff they haven't done. Um, and I said at the start, if you're here today and you're looking in through that window of what Jesus's, life in Jesus' family is like, and you think that you might want some of that, um, or maybe you'd like to find out a little bit more, then, um, or just you've, the little taste you've seen of Jesus' family this morning has just caught your attention a little bit. Um, I'd love you to encourage you to, there's some cards dotted around um, on the tables, response cards. Please fill in your information. We'd love to um, answer any questions you've got. We'd love to chat to you more if that's something you'd like to um, find out about. But um, yeah, and we'd love to, we'd just love you to share with you what it's like to follow Jesus and what it's like to be a part of his family. Um, so, um, I'm going to pray as I finish, and then I'm going to hand back to Valter. Yeah, Father, I thank you that we we can count you. We can be count ourselves as being part of your family. I thank you for the amazing privilege that that is. I thank you that um, we can know that when we face attack, that you're with us and that you give us what we need to to get through. Um, I thank you that your kingdom is is radically different to what we see happening in the world. And I thank you that that we can know, um, as a member of your family, we can know real security um, and we can know that um, even if we mess up, that you're still going to be with us, that if we turn to you, that, that you will restore us and you will heal us. Um, so I just, yeah, I pray that we will gr- really grasp hold of what it's like to be in your family, that we will feel um, no fear of the attack we're facing, and that we will feel a real sense of security and a real sense of your love. Amen.